Why now had Ross Murdoch become so important to someone that they would do all this to shake him? He was a volunteer. For what? To be a guinea pig for some bug they wanted to learn how to kill cheaply and easily? They'd been in a big hurry to push him off base, using the silent treatment. This rushing around in planes, they were really working to keep him groggy. So, all right, he'd give them a groggy boy all set up for their job, whatever it was. Only, was his act good enough to fool the Major? Ross had a hunch that it might not be, and that really hurt. It was deep night now. Either they had flown out of the path of the storm or were above it. There were stars shining through the cover of the cockpit, but no moon. Ross's formal education was sketchy, but in his own fashion he had acquired a range of knowledge which would have surprised many of the authorities who had had to deal with him. All the wealth of a big city library had been his to explore, and he had spent much time there, soaking up facts in many odd branches of learning. Facts were very useful things. On at least three occasions, assorted scraps of knowledge had preserved Ross's freedom, once perhaps his life. Now he tried to fit together the scattered facts he knew about this present situation into some proper pattern. He was inside some new type of super-super atom jet, a machine so advanced in design that it would not have been used for anything that was not an important mission, which meant that Ross Murdoch had become necessary to someone, somewhere. Knowing that fact should give him a slight edge in the future, and he might well need such an edge. He'd just have to wait, play dumb, and use his eyes and ears. At the rate they were shooting along, they ought to be out of the country in a couple of hours. Didn't the government have bases half over the world to keep the cold peace? Well, there was nothing for it. To be planted abroad someplace might interfere with plans for escape, but he had handled that detail when he was forced to face it. Then suddenly, Ross was on his back once more, the giant hand digging into his chest and middle. This time there were no lights on the ground to guide them in. Ross had no intimation that they had reached their destination until they sat down with a jar which snapped his teeth together. The Major wiggled out and Ross was able to stretch his cramped body. But the other's hand was already on his shoulder, urging him along. Ross crawled free and clung dizzily to a ladder-like disembarking structure. Below there were no lights, only an expanse of open snow. Men were moving across that blank area, gathering at the foot of the ladder. Ross was hungry and very tired. If the Major wanted to play games, he hoped that such action could wait until the next morning. In the meantime, he must learn where here was. If he had a chance to run, he wanted to know the surrounding territory. But that hand was on his arm, drawing him along towards a door that stood half open. As far as Ross could see, it led to the interior of a hillock of snow. Either the storm or men had done a very good cover-up job, and somehow Ross knew the camouflage was intentional. That was Ross's introduction to the base, and after his arrival his view of the installation was extremely limited. One day was spent in undergoing the most searching physical he had ever experienced. 
and after the doctors had poked and pried, he was faced by a series of other tests no one bothered to explain. Thereafter, he was introduced to solitary, that is, confined to his own company in a cell-like room with a bunk that was more comfortable than it looked and an announcer in a corner of the ceiling. So far, he had been told exactly nothing, and so far he had asked no questions, stubbornly keeping up his end of what he believed to be a tug of wills. At the moment, safely alone and lying flat on his bunk, he eyed the announcer, a very dangerous young man, and one who re refused to yield an inch. Now, here it is. The voice transmitted through the grill was metallic, but its rasp held overtones of Kilgury's voice. Ross's lips tightened. He had explored every inch of the walls and knew that there was no trace of the door which had admitted him. With only his bare hands to work with, he could not break out and his only clothes were the shirt, sturdy slacks, and a pair of soft-soled moccasins that they had given him. "'Try identify,' groaned a voice. Ross realized that he must have missed something. Not that it mattered. He was almost determined not to play alone anymore. There was a click signifying that Kilgarry's was through brain. But the customary silence did not close in again. Instead, Ross heard a clear, sweet trilling, which he vaguely associated with a bird. His acquaintance with all feathered life was limited to city sparrows and plump park pigeons, neither of which raised their voices in song. But surely those sounds were bird notes. Ross glanced from the mic in the ceiling to the opposite wall, and what he saw there made him set up, with the instant response of an alerted fighter. For the wall was no longer there, and steered there was a sharp slope of ground jutting down from the peaks where the dark green of fir trees ran close to the snow line. Patches of snow clung to the earth in sheltered places, and the scent of those pines was in Ross's nostrils, real as the wind touching him with a chill. He shivered as a howl sounded loudly and echoed, bearing the age-old warning of a wolf pack hungry and a hunt. Ross had never heard that sound before, but his human heritage subconsciously recognized it for what it was, death on four feet. Similarly, he was able to identify the gray shadows slinking about the nearest trees, and his hands balled into fists as he looked wildly about him for some weapon. The bunk was under him, and three of the four walls of the room enclosed him like a cave, but one of those gray skulkers had raised his head and was looking directly at him, its reddish eyes alight. Ross ripped the top blanket off the bunk with a half-formed idea of snapping it at the animal when it sprung. Stiff-legged, the beast advanced. A guttural growl sounded deep in its throat. To Ross, the animal, larger than any dog he had ever seen, and twice as vicious, was a monster. He had the blanket ready before he realized that the wolf was not watching him after all, and that his attention was focused on a point out of his line of vision. The wolf's muzzle wrinkled in a snarl, revealing long yellow-white teeth. There was a singing twang, and the animal leaped into the air, fell back and rolled on the ground, biting desperately at a shaft protruding from just behind its ribs. 
It howled again, and blood broke from its mouth. Ross was beyond surprise now. He pulled himself together and got up, to walk steadily towards the dying wolf. And he wasn't in the least amazed when his outstretched hand flattened against an unseen barrier. Slowly, he swept his hands right and left, sure that he was touching the wall of his cell, yet his eyes told him he was on a mountainside, and every sight, sound, and smell was making it real to him. Puzzled, he thought a moment, and then, finding an explanation that satisfied him, he nodded once and went back to set at ease on his bunk. This must be some superior form of TV that included odors, the illusion of wind, and other fancy touches to make it more vivid. The total effect was so convincing that Ross had to keep reminding himself that it was all just a picture. The wolf was dead. Its packmates had fled into the brush. But since the picture remained, Ross decided that the show was not yet over. He could still hear a click of sound and he waited for the next bit of action, but the reason for his viewing, it still eluded him. A man came into view, crossing before Ross. He stooped to examine the dead wolf, catching it by the tail and hoisting its hindquarters off the ground. Comparing the beast's size with the hunter's, Ross saw that he had not been wrong in his estimation of the animal's unusual large dimensions. The man shouted over his shoulder, his words distinct enough, but unintelligible to Ross. The stranger was oddly dressed, too lightly dressed if one judged the climate by the frequent snow patches and the biting cold. A strip of coarse cloth, extending from his armpit to about four inches above the knee, was wound around his body and pulled in at the waist by a belt. The belt, far more ornate than the cumbersome wrapping, was made of many small chains linking metal plates and supporting a long dagger which hung straight in front. The man also wore a round blue cloak, now swept back on his shoulders to free his bare arms, which was fastened by a large pin under his chin. His footwear, which extended above his calves, was made of animal hide, still bearing patches of shaggy hair. His face was beardless though a shadow line along his chin suggested that he had not shaved that particular day. A fur cap concealed most of his dark brown hair. Was he an Indian? No, for although his skin was tanned, it was as fair as Ross's under that weathering, and his clothing did not resemble any Indian apparel Ross had ever seen. Yet in spite of his primitive trappings, the man had such an aura of authority of self-confidence and competence that it was clear he was top dog in his own section of the world. Soon, another man, dressed much like the first, but with a rust-brown cloak, came along, pulling behind him two very reluctant donkeys, whose eyes rolled fearfully at sight of the dead wolf. Both animals wore packs lashed on their backs by ropes of twisted hide. Then another man came along with another brace of donkeys. Finally, a fourth man, wearing skins for covering and with a mat of beard on his cheeks and chin, appeared. His uncovered head, a bush of uncombed flaxen hair, shone whitish as he knelt beside the dead beast. A knife with a dull gray blade in his hand 
and set to work skinning the wolf with appreciable skill. Three more pairs of donkeys, all heavily laden, were led past the scene before he finished his task. Finally, he rolled the bloody skin into a bundle and gave the flayed body a kick before he ran lightly after the disappearing train of pack animals. End of chapter 1